Welcome to the IME Community Podcast, where self-love is your superpower to achieve your weight and life goals and make your mark in the world. Your host is Dr. Carla, activist MD. If you're a teen who's looking to revolutionize your health and can't wait to follow your dreams, welcome to the IME Community. Community podcast. This is Dr. Carl. I'm so excited for this podcast and YouTube video, probably more than I have been for any other one because I have an amazing guest, Jesse Coffey, who I've worked with forever and who's my awesome friend. So we're going to be talking all things community, but before we get started, I want to encourage you all to check out imecommunity.com if you're a teen 12 to 18 or parent of a teen who's struggling with your weight, struggling with your body image. I know it's really bad during COVID, a lot of pandemic weight gain, a lot of social emotional issues we're worried about. It's a great time to join IME community and get Dr. Carla coaching. So... Um, with that, I'm going to go ahead and launch into our podcast and YouTube video. So this is something I've been wanting to do for a long time. And if you've been listening to the podcast and YouTube and watching the YouTube videos, which I hope you have, and make sure that you like and subscribe and share on Apple and Spotify so that everyone gets all this amazingness. And anyway, you know that um, I've been doing this work around the childhood obesity epidemic for almost 20 years. And on every level. So in 2008, I left my pediatric practice, really tough decision for me. And I love all of the patients and families. And it was so tough to start Teach a Kid to Fish, which is a local nonprofit that I started from scratch. And the vision was creating community solutions for children's health. So ended up building this amazing community collaborative that did work in early childhood and healthcare and the community and in school systems. And it was awesome. And the best part of it was the community partnerships and taking a vision. And the vision was creating community solutions for children's health, mobilizing the community around that and working with partners like my guest today, Jesse Coffey, again, um, to really manifest that vision. And you will find if you do this work, which I'm going to encourage you to, and hopefully Jesse and I can encourage you to be a visionary champion in your community on this issue and help you um, help by sharing some of our challenges and rewards and success that you can um, I'm having a little issue with my microphone there. Hopefully it'll be okay. Um, so that you can uh, also do this work and maybe avoid some of the pitfalls, but know where you're going to have impact. But anyway, so what you really need to have success on a community level is partnerships and collaborators who align with your vision for children, for children's health in my case. And so I can't think of anybody else who aligns with my vision and the way that I work and move forward with action than uh, Jesse Coffey. So uh, the 
this is launching the IME Community Solutions for Children's Health podcast and YouTube series where I'm bringing you all things community. And I believe that community impact is where true change come from, comes from. And community is where our powerful stories come from. And as someone who's done this work on the community level for many years, it's the most rewarding work. It is the most challenging. It is the hardest work you will ever do. It is what you will be the most proud of. And so with that, I'm going to introduce my first guest. So I have to say, Jesse, like, um, you know, Teach a Kid to Fish launching a nonprofit was a big investment for my husband and I. And um, we have so much goodwill and so many amazing memories and so many overwhelming memories of, mm -hmm. you know, it was a family thing for you too. Mm -hmm. Your work has been. Um, but we were reflecting back on some of the most amazing collaborations and partnerships. And then we got to where we refined it and said, like, would it have even existed or been able to exist without these people? And like, who was the top champion? And it was so fun because both of us came up with you. Said, if Without Jesse Coffee, we could not have had Teach a Kid to Fish. And it was just so cool. Cause you were always there and it just makes me get emotional because it's so awesome. Um, and we, we have to get ourselves together because we have a lot of work to do, but anyway, uh, I just thought you should know that. The, the Thank you. Thank you. From, and tomorrow I'm interviewing a Lynn Sampson, who's the vice president of operation, the food bank of Lincoln, who's an amazing community, um, activist around, uh, food access and child hunger programs. I mean, she's incredible bridges out of poverty. And when I told her that I was interviewing you first, she said, don't make me go after Jesse coffee. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. But let me tell um, the audience a little bit about you that you shared with me in your bio, and then we'll hear from you. So Jesse has 20 years of experience in public health and is a registered dietitian by training and has a master's degree in family services administration. Jesse has worked in multiple sectors, including state and federal nutrition programs, K through 12 education, and with nonprofits to co-create well-being opportunities that support the equitable promotion of health for all Nebraskans. Jesse works to be a human connector, very true, a lifelong learner, absolutely, and strives to embrace the messiness of life that is at the heart of public health work. She's also a mom and has three amazing boys, young men, <laughs> I know. So it's a big part of her life. Um, and they've been a big part of her work too. So welcome, Jesse. I will tell you that I think the first time that you and I, when I started Teach a Kid to Fish and I went to a meeting for Alliance for Healthier Generation was the first um, time that I really saw you in action. And I just remember the resistance you got from some of the members of the audience and how mm -hmm. you handled it. And that's what you're going to get on the community level. So, yep. <laughs> so I want you to first tell us a little bit more um, about yourself and your work. Sure. So um, having worked with Lincoln Public Schools for about 13 years, um, really working um, with Carla through really a majority of, of that time to promote health and well-being um, there, I learned that that was kind of the space that I wanted to spend a lot more time with. Um, and eventually ended up at the Department of Education to do that sort of statewide, um, which in my head, I wasn't sure if that would translate from, you know, a local community to the, is that a possibility to do statewide? And really after about four years of 
um, connecting with people and learning about what's available um, absolutely is. And so um, continuing that community work um, at a state level, but really still having that local connections at, in our communities. And really we're pri prioritizing um, communities that have um, the highest um, health disparities and working on some of those um, equity pieces um, in sort of a not very welcoming political environment um, across our state. And really it just speaks to the importance of making sure that we work to support those uh, students and families that need our help the most. Great, that's incredible. So tell us a little bit more about um, how COVID has affected your work now. So I, I always used to say this, um, schools have always thought of like wellness and, and supporting student well health and um, the nurses have always kind of been on board, but as far as administrators and like looking at, at youth that are, that are um, needing additional supports for their either chronic conditions or overweight, um, that it was kind of like a good idea, but not necessarily foundational. And I think what the silver lining to the pandemic has really shown is that health is absolutely foundational to academic success and we can address it and be effective in a systematic way to make sure that our students feel supported and are healthy and safe at school, um, or we can kind of ignore it. And then what we're seeing this year with COVID is really those poor educational um, outcomes just because of COVID and the online learning and some of those things, we had no, we had no idea that that would be the long-term effects. Um, and so now everyone's really realizing and the Surgeon General's report that was released on Tuesday really outlines that we're in a mental health crisis. So we really need to kind of begin where that crisis um, outlines and really support that the whole child, um, physical, mental, social, emotional, the well-being of students and staff. Mm -hmm. How do you think that we're going to be able to do that? I mean, you and I know like it depends on the local champion there. So when you're doing work with schools, I mean, those partnerships are critical. And how do you, how do you suggest creating a partnership or, you know, aligning vision for that? So work? one of the one of the best things that we've come um, across at the NDE um, is a full service community school model, um, which LPS did to some degree. Uh, but we're really working with a couple communities across the state to roll out that model. So really getting all of those like whole child supports available, making sure that schools know where to connect families with mental health, with um, if it's dental or vision or, you know, uh, vaccinations that those families um, know where to be connected in with, or if it's housing, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and that the, there's that strong relationship within the community to the school. I know um, sometimes schools are like, castles in the morning they put the drawbridge down and the kids all come in and they put it up at 805 and then community members and families don't feel necessarily really welcome there and so um, that full service community school model which is a national model um, really works to make families feel welcome within a school setting that they're a partner in education and a partner in supporting students health or whatever needs they may have um, and I know there's a lot of different uh, districts doing different things. Working to do telehealth is one of one of the um, strategies um, that's becoming more and more popular that I'm hearing about, especially to, to address that mental health challenge. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that there are such gaps in mental behavioral health um, services and resources ongoing before the pandemic. Uh, sometimes what happens is that there's alarm 
and there's data. We've had all the data and we've used BMI data and had all the data that shows that we're not getting anywhere and that these are ongoing issues for children and families and communities. And then nothing really happens. And then it falls on the shoulders of the visionary champion. So tell me a little bit more about your thoughts on that. Yes. And schools have always been, you know, very data driven. And so I think it depends really like if what data they're looking at. And then we too, and we know too, as public health professionals that um, like, if you're going to track BMI, I mean, that's not going to happen in a year or two years. That's, you know, you're looking at a five-year span of that being something that you can see um, turning the needle, but really, you know, working with them to make some of those system-wide changes. um, And really too, if we think about the traditional biomedical model um, of healthcare versus if we think about um, it's really, if we can change the systems and instead of putting all the onus on the individual, I think that's where you can really make some change. Um, It's still slow. um, And I know for those students that are and families that are suffering with some of these challenges right now, that that seems maybe not like an adequate response, but definitely I think turning the narrative to systems change um, to help support the individual. That's great. So tell us a little bit about like when you, just to go back in time, when you decided to become an RD um, and then you're, and I've worked with so many RDs who do lots of different things and, So tell us a little bit more about, you know, going to become an RD and all the different work you've been doing. Sure. So for me, um, when I was in high school, I was able to shadow a couple different healthcare providers across a couple different settings. And um, I landed on, wow, I didn't even know a dietitian was a possibility uh, when I had set out to do my shadowing experience which by the way, if you're a parent um, listening and you have a a student that's not sure what they wanna do, uh, I would recommend um, working with your high school counselor to um, set up something like that for your student. It's a really great way to um, learn about careers. Um, So, but I found the dietitian role um, really intriguing because I was uh, shadowing a community dietitian and um, that's definitely was the the area I liked the best. Uh, because you're able to help people find everyday solutions to their kind of complex medical problems. Uh, probably were beyond their, you know, true understanding of everything. Um, and so I really like just the, um, just being able to work with people, help solutions, help them be healthy. Um, and, and then when I did my internship and then came back to Lincoln, I st- started immediately in the community setting because um, for me, the clinical world in the hospital was a little um, unfriendly. Uh, and so I, I really liked when you got, when I got to engage with folks and develop relationships and it wasn't just a one and done, um, people were sitting there with their suitcases on their lap and you're trying to do diet, a diet consult, um, when they weren't quite ready for it. So that's why I really liked the community piece, um, and started my first job at F street recreation center, where I worked with youth and, um, elderly folks. And we did lots of different nutrition programs, um, for both populations and, really enjoyed that, um, worked in the uh, state WIC uh, program and then went to LPS. And then now I'm at, at um, NDE and I'm really, really excited to be able to work with such awesome people um, at the NDE, really people that like get the importance of this community work um, and that 
we really need to work to co-construct solutions and not us tell people what they need to do. I love that, like co-construct solutions. Um, what do you think like um, some of the issues were and challenges were like with our work? I mean, I can mm -hmm. tell you and I'm sure you'll agree, but when you're on the community level, I love how you're saying like co-construct solutions. Uh, because a lot of times, you know, it'll fall on like one nonprofit and the way the funding paradigms are set up mm -hmm. and when it's not a systems approach, I mean, the, the burden of sustainability, uh, the burden of everything falls typically like it did on like teach kid to fish and you mm -hmm. feel like the weight of the world on your shoulders. So I think that inhibits a lot of people from doing community work. Uh, just all the political stuff you have to deal with. Uh, mm -hmm. What advice do you have for that? So yeah, definitely be, be prepared for the messiness of it. You know, you can have it, everything, a black and white table all lined out beautifully. And then when you get to where you're going, um, three fourths of it won't, won't work for this, won't work for the school. And, and it isn't because they're being difficult. And I think that we just really have to have an open mind when we work with schools or any other community agency. Um, they know they're, they're experts in their world. So their school, their families, they know them. Um, and so who am I to come from somewhere else and say, oh, I think you should do this. And even when I, even though I worked at LPS, you know, I worked at the district level, I didn't work at Huntington Elementary, you know, so there, the way that we needed to work to create solutions for those families was different than a different school. So I think being very hearing um, what your, what your population that you're trying to serve has to say, and then being willing to shift and make changes. Um, and I think of the, um, the project that we did with Dr. Nelson um, in Lexington, that we had made a lot of shifts there, but it ended up being very, it very, I think it worked out really well. You know, we didn't plan it that way, but it ended up that way um, as we worked with families and um, uh, to, to find solutions and then coaching the um, community health workers. I thought that was one of like one of my favorite projects um, that we were. Tell us on. a little bit more about it. I mean, that was based on a program that you brought to the community called Body Works. Mm -hmm. And um, we were able to piecemeal funding for many years. And Jesse and I, I think we're the main people implementing Body Works. And I counted up one time we had done like 20 different runs of I think it was what six or eight eight weeks or huh? um, of bodyworks programming in so many different settings and you have like you said you have to be agile you have to be learning it's like a continuous quality improvement which is the same thing with like coaching like or working as a physician with as a dietitian too if you're in the clinical setting that that's how we should be working with our patients um, mm -hmm. That's how we should be working with our clients is listening. They know themselves best. <laughs> the parents know the teen best. So um, tell us more about Body Works and your vision for Body Works. Some of the things that, that you learned through that, like implementing a multidisciplinary evidence-based uh, program within the community. Yes. And you had at one time... Um had this wonderful pyramid graphic where you had um, the body works was in the, at the top, was it at the top, right? Yeah. It was close it was, to the top. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Closer to the top. So essentially this was a, um, an evidence-based program developed by the office of women's health. And um, the goal of it was for um, teens or teens or preteens um, 12 to 18, where they work 
it's a family program. So they work um, through this six to eight week um, program to learn about all the dimensions of um, health and well-being that support a healthy weight. And, and families, of course, are a huge component of that. And so we did it and we did did many runs of that program. Um, and it was all, you know, um, the materials were already developed. So we just had to um, order them and then recruit families and then implement the project as outlined um, in the materials. And really, we did a lot of hands-on activities and um, families were, I guess, in group with some of the content in the lessons when we did our, our sessions, because uh, sometimes kids don't listen to their parents, as we all know, sometimes a lot of the time. Um, and so they were able to hear someone else talking about why these are good practices and how that helps support their um, long-term goal of, you know, whatever that might be um, for their weight or even some of the parents' weight too. Um, we had some successes with some of the, some of the families, some of the parents um, as well. And so I know a couple of parents really even explained like, when you have a teen, sometimes it's hard to find things to come to, together around. And they were, they were, they looked forward to coming to the sessions because they had that, they had that to do together. So um, yeah, but really we started with um, doing evaluation pieces um, in partnership with Dr. Nelson um, at UNL and having him assist with finding out what we could do better. Um, so success stories and solutions that families then implemented after the program. Um, and really then the work they had, they had their own work the families were to do during the course of the week between each, each weekly session. And then we had them graduate at the end and then make some next steps. Yeah. And it was really, it was fun. I mean, that was a thing. Like it was family, it was very behavioral based and it was fun. And the families, the parents would cook with the kids. I mean, and there was always food or a mm -hmm. snack of some sort. And then, and so it was very hands-on and, and then also there was activities, physical mm -hmm. activities, and they would work toward goals. And the, some of the measures I remember that were improved were a lot around the health behaviors because within, you know, I mean, you can't significantly decrease BMI always in that time. And we didn't always measure it. Um, I think one of the challenges was recruitment. We always had that issue. We actually had pretty good luck over time, but we found that with the um, physicians, finding the physician champions, the pediatricians and family physicians who would refer their families, that that was really helpful. Yeah, I think some of the, yeah, really that we had, and then the, even the partnership with the YMCA yeah. um, and getting the families in there. Um, and we, um, so for the physical activity piece, we would have various um, community partners helping with leading that. And at the Y, we were able to do um, some, some free memberships for uh, several months. And then the families actually got to be trained on the, how to use the equipment, which is very daunting if you've never been to a gym and maybe not, it doesn't feel like a super welcoming space until you've been there a few times. And so I thought that was a huge win for families to get access to that and get that like little bit of hands-on training. In addition to the free memberships was getting that training then on the Y equipment, um, because that can be kind of, even for me, as if I've got, as I've gone to different gyms, it's kind of um, a daunting to go into a gym space you're not familiar with and you don't, you feel like people are judging you. And so once you've been there, you've been trained on the equipment, 
then you um, feel more comfortable and you're likely to come back more. And they also experienced not only like the workout space, but also they were able to try some of the classes too. So then they knew how that, those worked and how that setup work was. Um, they had youth-based classes and then families or parents could go um, at the same time for a, like a Zumba class. So that was fun too. Yeah, that's cool. I remember the kids, like one of the kids was so excited to see you um, and gave you a big hug and was so sad that it was the last night of the sessions. Yes. Remember yes. that? <laughs> <laughs> I know this working with kids are they're so great. They're yeah. so honest with their emotions and <laughs> and you're so chill too about it because um you know, there's a lot of, I've been doing on TikTok, as you know, and I knew there was weight stigma and bias in healthcare, but I had no idea until I had like this viral post and then actually did this article in Kevin MD about it. And Catherine, my daughter and I wrote up this kind of like qualitative study on it, looking at the trends. But um, one of the things that I really loved was like, there was just so much compassion. It wasn't like the families would come and, and you would say, or I would say, you know, like do this, do that. You know, they would, some of them would show up with their super size, um, soft drinks. And, you know, I mean, you literally just have to kind of laugh and meet people where they are. It's like, they're there. Uh-huh. So that's a win. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then we, yeah, we, and we talked a lot about um reasonable like modifications small steps to be successful and I know Carla one of the big your big phrases that I still think of all the time as I'm talking to schools is like we need to give these families a little win they need to yeah. they need a win in their yeah. corner you know they need something to go their way so they can then be like that worked okay let's take in the next step for the next win yeah, that's so cool. And I've been learning more about, there's some more research coming out around like self-actualization theory versus like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which actually wasn't based in science. And so it's really interesting to see like, especially now with the pandemic, worsening health disparities, all the issues. Um, let's see, families do want what's best. They want to um, improve their lives. And even if they're in, poverty. And so let's help people. Let's empower people. Let's really meet them where they are to help them do that. So that's really cool. I think one of the challenging things, at least for me, and I know it was for you too, is the funding streams. Mm -hmm. Okay. In a local community, I mean, come on, that is mm -hmm. the hardest part. Of it is. It's like getting things funded. And it's like, people say you don't need money. You need some resources people are experts. I would always say this, we're not chumps here. Like I'm a pediatrician here just because I decided to start this nonprofit. And then you're, um, you know, you're at the whims, it felt like sometimes of these funders mm -hmm. and the funders will say, what's, you know, they put all the burden of sustainability. And so for body works, you know, that was sometimes hard. It's like, listen, it's enough. And it's amazing that we helped these, you know, eight or 10 families have a really amazing time and have some wins and wellness, like you said, mm -hmm. and who knows, you know, we can't measure it on a scale, but I mean, anyway, I think that that was one of the hardest things, but you and I always made it work. We figured it out. <laughs> yeah. And I think too, with that, to your point about community funding and with the funders, you know, are saying and driving the programs is um, really the more I learn about working with communities is sometimes 
we need to leave flexibility in there for the community members to tell us what we need. And and the fund and I know hopefully funders can be okay with the with the community members or the you know end users telling us what solutions they want to find um, from this given project. And then two, sometimes funders tend to like pit community potential community partners against each other because you're both competing for really limited resources. And so that's you know a really messy part of that community work as well. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's just the reality of it too. Um, okay. And um, tell me a little bit about what would you say other than that, other than the funding, like, what do you think is the biggest challenge of working on a community level? Well, now, you know, now with COVID and the, the ongoing, uh, you know, challenge of COVID is that, uh, and especially I, I was thinking about, you know, if body works, for example, you know, everyone's kind of used to not going to places with, you know, and with bigger groups of people. And so what might that look like if we, if, you know, you were to do that sort of thing now in the um, community, you know, is it maybe rethinking that having it a virtual program, you know, half of it virtual, like Tuesday nights, you would do the education nutrition piece online, and then you'd go to the Y on Thursday nights and work out, you know, like, how could you make that, how could you make that work um, in the world we, we live in now with COVID and um, just the challenges, just to meet people where they're at and and understand where they're coming from and and sort of the new normal that we live in. Yeah, the new normal. Yeah, because mm -hmm. it's not going away. No, mm -hmm. no. Every yeah. every like every time we think it's going away, then there's a new <laughs> new reason it's not a new variant. Yeah. Okay. So um, tell me a little bit more about like how how do you because you're a real action taker mm -hmm. and um, I think one of the things is like, you know, people are afraid of taking action because they have self-doubt mm -hmm. or they um, have such a, a pattern of perfectionism mm -hmm. that they kind of overproduce it and they don't get to the to doing the thing. Mm -hmm. um, do you have, I mean, I just, I really think that we really have to step back from overproducing our things and just get it out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And one of the, so yeah, I mean, yes, the, the pre-work is important to have it, have it be coherent and organized, but really go out and do that thing. And don't be afraid of making mistakes because you're really all learning together and, um, for all the things that went well, when things didn't go well, I, we learned just as much from that, if not more, and we would change or modify what we did. Like by the time we got to the Fallbrook Y, we were doing, we were, we were in an FCS kitchen. We were cooking yeah. every time people, they were doing take and bake meals home with them. In addition to what they were making, um, if we weren't actually cooking a bigger thing, and then they were doing physical activity in a Y space. I mean, that was all an evolution over four years of that work. So yeah. you have to start somewhere and learn from, from wherever you start. It's not where you have to end, but don't be afraid to start something you, because you never know how amazing it might be. Yeah. Look for the strategic byproducts, all the other things that are going to come that you had and be open to that. Mm -hmm. to, to learn. Cause I had no idea, like I would get all these amazing partnerships and friendships and stuff. And that's been incredible. Okay. So cool. So, um, what are you, what are you most proud of? Gosh, 
<laughs> I, as I was thinking Other than about your that, kids. Yeah, right. Of course. Um, yes. And my kids are great. They, and my older two, and even my younger one at times, um, but they, they were with us for, through many of, many of the, much of this work. Um, one of my favorite projects was the um, farmer's market scavenger hunt. Yes. That was just, and, the, and I actually came across one of those signs um, not that long ago and I took it over to Emily and I was like, look. <laughs> yeah, she did a ton with that too. Oh yeah, gosh. so I mean, really, and that had a ton of community part, like community connections. Amazing. So really it's, it's I think my favorite part of all of the, all of the work that I've done because Nebraska, the, the public health space is not that big. And so all of the, all of the partnerships, all the connections, all the relationships with all the different people, um, you know, when I go places and do things or like, even when I moved to the NDE, um, we have had folks come on and I know them from LPS or I know them from a different place. And so it's really easy to connect back in and then start doing that work together. And so I really think, especially amidst the pandemic and the like sort of limited partners or connections that we have sometimes because everyone's remote, um, that that's one of the most important things of the most important components of the work that we've done and the work that at the Indy that I continue to do across the state. It's really those those relationships um, and community partners. And they don't go away. They're individual too. I mean, yeah. sometimes you think that they're related to the, the organizations, but I found this out that all partnerships are based on the individual relationships. So mm -hmm. yes. yeah. That's awesome. So how do you stay with like a positive vision? Okay, so one of the things that you dealt with at uh, Lincoln Public Schools was lots of comments um, about um, school lunch. Mm -hmm. So um, tell us, you know, and parents talk about that all the time and the teens I coach, like, I mean, I coach them from all over. They're not in Lincoln, but um, necessarily like, they're like, my school lunch is crap, you know? And then mm -hmm. um, people like to complain about school lunch and parents like to blame school lunch and doctors like to attack the chocolate milk. <laughs> and so, I mean, how do you do that too? When you're someone in the community is going to put themselves out there, you know, you're going to get the positive and the negative and the, you know. <laughs> yes. One of my favorite stories about, um, it was actually at one of our middle schools. They were actually, the, the students were boycotting lunch and um, they were, so because the health class was learning about the lunch and like what, what you're supposed to eat versus like, they felt like what, what, what they had available to them, even though there's a lot of behind the scenes of school lunch, there's a lot of regulations that all meet guidelines and you know, there's fruits and vegetables offered and things. Um, and so there's a lot for, for everybody in food service, school food service, they, it is a very complicated um, process to get the right items on the menu, meet all of the very strict nutritional requirements. But what that ends up resulting in sometimes is maybe not this, the, the food that kids are traditionally used to seeing or what they would like. Um, I know sometimes when we would sit down with kids and ask what they wanted, they were like, lobster, ice cream, <laughs> soda, you know, so they just like either things that weren't realistic or, or things that um, were too expensive to have on the school lunch menu. But really, in that case, we went and, and sat and talked with the kids and asked them what they wanted what, what would they, what, what did they feel was missing? And then we actually partnered with a um, health teacher to do uh, basically a nutrition education project in the lunchroom where the kids 
put health information on the tabletops and then the whole school. And I think that was like sixth grade did that as part of their, you know, every section of health, of health that day did, did this nutrition project. And then everybody in the whole school benefited from it. So it was really, again, partnering, partnering with those folks and making sure that their voices are heard and that the kids have agency. Mm-hmm. And really it, that ended up being very positive, a positive experience. And that teacher ended up being one of our strongest advocates for the Alliance project. So oh, that was there really you go. Awesome. There you go. Turn it, turn mm-hmm. it. <laughs> so, um, okay. So what other, tell me a little bit more about fresh fruits and vegetables too in the school. Cause you did a ton with that. Yes. So that is one of my favorite programs still, um, across the country. Um, but the fresh fruit and vegetable program is available to schools that are over, um, 50% free and reduced. And so schools are, um, notified at the end of each school year that they're eligible to, to partici- participate in the following school year and they fill out a short application um, and then they they get funding and it's direct reimbursement so it's a really nice program um, which allows for them to offer things that maybe would have been a little bit more expensive that isn't feasible for the lunch menu because they're directly reimbursed up to a certain amount they get a grant every year um, and so then they get to use their grant um, and so Really in LPS, um, the preschool teachers and some of the younger kids, uh, like the younger grades K through two, they did such awesome, some of such amazing food experiences and they read books and they did culture activities and they learned about coconuts and how they grow and just amazing things. So not only are we we exposing um, children to new foods and allowing them to try it in a very low situation and then but they also have the benefit of the peer positive peer pressure that that goes on at school um and then we also then after kids got to try things like plums in the in their classroom for the fruit and vegetable program when they were offered at lunch they knew what they were and they would take them and eat them there too so that was a a wonderful um second step of that program but yeah it it was really you can make that program into as as like you can be as extensive with it or you can just truly treat it as a snack while you're doing content review with older kids or whatever but really a, a great way to um, help get kids exposed to new things and then uh, also help them get their fruit and vegetable um, servings in for the week yeah that's awesome and the thing of it was is you pushed on it mm-hmm. you just pushed on it so where other people see you know, obstacles or barriers and walls, it was like, they don't even exist, which is what you have to be like, if you're mm-hmm. going to accomplish anything on the community level. Mm-hmm. Again, it's the most <laughs> impactful and the most rewarding and the most challenging work, but you got to do it. Okay. So tell me a little bit more about like, cause like I said, I work with tons of RDs and it's been kind of interesting. Um, and now on social media, looking at the influencers who are RDs, I think that there's, I think there's a lot of confusing messages out there with all the movements. There's body positive, there's health at every size, intuitive eating, dietitians, there's nutritionists. Some people are RDs, those, you know, and um, it's been really, I think, interesting to really learn. And I, you know, find some that I really follow and I recommend that my team members follow. But um, how do you reconcile that? And tell me a little bit more about like, I mean, because with the RD profession, and I know you've kind of moved along and do more public health and school health stuff and policy, but um, 
definitely has always been an issue of getting reimbursement has been um, really tough within healthcare systems until unless the patient already has like a comorbidity, unless they're already diabetic, but to, you know, just for obesity, just for being overweight, for prevention, uh, it's always been an ongoing frustration. And um, obviously we've needed to change that for a long time. Um, but anyway, just any thoughts on the RDs profession, how they can partner and, and think about doing this community work? Yeah. And I, and I know I've, I've heard, you know, other RDs saying, you know, you know, we can't just give our services away, which I agree, you know, to the, for the most part, but I do think it goes all back to those relationships. And so having those first conversations, I don't think you should expect to get necessarily reimbursed um, right away as you're establishing relationships or having initial conversations uh, because you, you need to identify if it's a fit for you, like what you can take on. Um, and then if it matches with your expertise area, um, but I mean, and then working, working out sort of, I guess, a, um, you know, a, if you're going to partner with a nonprofit, you have a nonprofit rate versus what you would have if you were going to work with a, um, you know, through the reimbursement system. And I know a lot that the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics is working really hard to, on the reimbursement process. And in Nebraska, we're working on to getting, um, written into some other pieces as well for reimbursement. And there's, you know, more things coming down the pike and hopefully, you know, hopefully that, that will get easier um, so that individuals can work with dietitians. You know, we know that the return on investment is really good. You know, when we have, have individuals working with trained um, registered dietitians that the outcomes are improved. And, and as we potentially move towards a more outcome-based um, reimbursement system with healthcare, you know, maybe that that's where the RD will be able to be connected in a bit better. Um, because, you know, we know that physicians get a little bit of, um, nutrition like one day in medical school, but for, by, you know, by and large, um, referring out and too, with the pandemic, you know, physicians don't have time to do that. And, and so being able to have, have feel confident and being connected in their communities with, with, um, RDs that are available, available to help um, support families or, or youth in that way is very valuable. Yeah, and physicians really don't have any training at all, like on motivational interviewing or health behavior change or, you know, coaching or nutrition and quite frankly, cause a lot of harm. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm trying to coach them on like, how do you have those conversations about the BMI and the weight and just to ask permission first. Mm -hmm. as the first thing. And then also for the parents of children and teens, after they've had that visit with the doctor, maybe pre-visit um, and just say, this is what, you know, they're going to be measuring all these things. I mean, you know, your kid the best, so that may not be a helpful conversation beforehand, but if they're struggling with their weight or they um, are worried about it, um, maybe you tell the, the doctor, the nurse that, they don't want to be weighed or, um, you know, just get ahead of it with some intentionality and then how to have the conversation afterwards, um, about like the BMI or so how to show up as a loving and supportive parent. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like too, there needs to be a, a little conversation about like, you know, not placing blame on anybody for yeah. the situation, you know, cause I think a lot of times parents feel frustrated that they're at that situation 
where they're, they're at where they're at. And, you know, it's likely not for a lack of trying. Um, there's just a lot of things, you know, that, you know, are come into play with obesity. And, and, and so really just putting that, taking that burden off of the parents and, and letting them know, like, we're looking future forward here. We're, we're wanting to work on solutions and, you know, working to co-create solutions with the youth, things that the youth find reasonable um, and that the parents can, can reasonably support. Um, and everyone's on the same team here. I think th those are some of the really important pieces to help families feel supported. Because if they don't feel supported or that the solutions aren't reasonable, they, they're not sustainable. Yeah, they're not even gonna try. And then they're gonna feel like they failed at that. Mm -hmm. And then it's just going to make it worse and they're not going to try anything. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Like the guilt and the shame only creates judgment. And then they're going to, they're going to be alarmed and, and want to fix and solve. Cause even with good intention, you want to do something. And then that's when the harm of the physician who doesn't know how to work with a family on health behavior change causes harm because then they will maybe try to put their kid on a diet or restrict. And, mm -hmm. and then that's when the damage happens. So anyway, I think that's super helpful advice. I like the co-creating, compassionate, listening, listen, nobody, let's, let's bust through all the shame here. We live in this society and this food system and this pandemic has been tough on all of our health. Okay. Awesome. Super helpful. I was going to ask you that about what you would recommend um, for um, parents, but tell me, you talked to me a little bit um, about this with the relationships and partnerships, but like, as far as like, how do you measure success? Because um, when you're doing the community, what I mean by that is like, okay, so you have a funder who's saying like, and you have all these deliverables with your grant, like this many students as many schools as many trainings you know whatever mm -hmm. like for me it was like how much did their bmi significantly decrease or whatever um and but that's not sometimes it's you don't cause you don't control all that and you can't fix and solve it and i wish i would have just told them to just you know what um <laughs> uh, <laughs> sometimes but it's like how do you get the wins to know that like you keep going, that you're not there to fix and solve these problems, but you're there to show up, decide where you want to put your attentional focus and feel really good about it. Yeah. I really think some of it goes back to like collecting that those success, like the success and letting, letting our participants share their, their story. You know, we all have a story to share and it's in really by sharing the story, someone told me in the last year, and I can't remember who, you know, whoever's talking is the one that's learning or making meaning out of that experience. So um, as a dietitian, let's talk less and let's let our, our clients, you know, share their story. If it's your first visit, you know, where, where did they, where were they at before? Where did they start? Where are they at now? And then, you know, of course you have to talk a little bit, but really giving our clients a lot of space to, um, to, to share where they're at, where they want to go, and then what they want help with before we just jump in as like the expert to, to tell them how, what, how we want to fix them or what they need to do. Yeah, that's super helpful. And for parents too, like what you were just saying, like just mm -hmm. less talking, more listening, and then they're going to figure the teen, the child is going to kind of figure it out as they go along. Mm -hmm. as they're and sharing the their knows story. That there's minimal judgment, you know, being placed by parents. And I know how that is too. Like, 
when a parent or when a teacher emails you, your son's not listening in school or whatever, when they come <laughs> home and you're like, ah, you know, you're all over them. And I think we need to take a pause as parents and realize that what's the most productive way to address this situation and pick your battles and um, ask them their side of the story. Cause we know there's three sides to every story, you know, their story, their side, the teacher side, the, the kid's side and what really happened. So just, you know, <laughs> giving the space for that and, and letting, and letting the kids identify what they did wrong and how they can fix it. You know, again, in their world, their lens is different than ours as parents. That's great. So stay out of emotional reactivity and fix and solve and not wanting to deal with it to, and being done with it to just being responsive. Mm-hmm. Being responsive, loving, supportive, compassionate, and set boundaries and consequences because mm-hmm. I get those, I get those notes and calls too, as you know, from, <laughs> um, and it reminded me of, um, thinking about measures of success that, um, we have, um, epidemic of like insulin resistance. And I was seeing so much of that in my patients. And then, so when I started teaching kid to fish, 4% of us teens were severely obese. When I started the um, Heroes Clinic, it was 6% is what I was using for the data, uh, severely obese. Pre-pandemic, when I started IME Community, 9%. And uh, probably so much higher even after the pandemic. So um, one of the things that we saw a lot with Body Works, which is great that the families would come, was I remember um, one of my former patients had been referred and um, she had always been overweight, even when she was like a baby and she's adorable. Mm-hmm. And I love her so much and she's amazing. Um, but she became you know, really struggled with like even morbid obesity and, um, but they came mm-hmm. and they showed up and they did it. And then they ended up coming to the clinic and we weren't able to, you know, I wasn't a coach then, but I think like how, how we measure the success for her was that she showed up. Maybe that'll be, you know, when she gets to a stage of change on her own sometime, you know, there's so many factors. I know she had a high ACEs score, adverse childhood experience. I know she had trauma. I know she had chronic toxic stress. I know she had a strong genetic risk. Um, you know, I, I feel like sometimes you, you can't control for those things and you just have to feel good about that you have a relationship with her, you believe in her, you're having fun with her. She's got to win. <laughs> yeah. And she gained knowledge and skill. And we know that with youth having like one supportive adult relationship is, is protect, you know, protective against some of those aces. So yeah. even if that, if that was your relationship with her, you know, then she probably looked forward to your, your visits. And, and then, you know, in 10 years, when she is out of maybe that um, chronic stress environment, she has still has those knowledge and skills. And she has, you know, that modeled relationship with you, that those are things she can take forward. So those are, I mean, those are hard to collect metrics, but still I think um, should not be discounted. Yeah, so powerful. Mm-hmm. And for anyone who is um, launching any of this community work to know that you really look have to look at all sorts of measures of success. And like you said, be open to those. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. 
Okay, so tell me, um, what's your takeaway message? I mean, what do you think, like, after all this work and then moving forward, like, what's your vision? Like, now, for me, my vision is I create community with compassion and connection. That's really what I feel like my purpose in my life is. Yes. Um, so, really, too, as I've been working on my PhD and really working and looking at, like, that interpersonal communication and the importance of that and, um, and working to co-construct solutions with our participants and really um, giving them that voice and that choice. And the, mo is more, the more that we can do that, the better. So if you're working with the youth, if you're working with a community partner, if you're working with families, schools, whatever it is, you know, making sure that you go in with an open mind and an open heart, you know, like you said at the beginning, this is messy work, this is heart work. You know, it's, we're all in this for the right reasons and not to make millions of dollars. You know, we're here because we care about people and we want to make a difference. And so um, I think one of the best ways we can, we can um, outline how much we care about people is, you know, putting them at the center of the work and letting them drive the solutions. I love it. It's awesome. Okay. So tell me what you do for fun. Cause a big part of IMA community is to make it fun to get it done. It doesn't have to be grueling to reach a health goal. So what do you do and not talking about health, but what do you do for fun? So one of my fun things that I, I like to do, I'm a big, um, I'm a big outside person. So I like to, we like to go boating in the summer swimming and um, spend, that's mainly family time. And then for, for my health promotion is I have two crazy dogs that I have to take on walks um, frequently. And um, so that's one of the, my favorite times just to like decompress. It's part of my self-care. Um, also, my dogs are just, you know, dogs, pets are so much part of, of that too. And the self-care and the snuggling and all that. So those are family and pets and taking time for me. And those are, those are important things. And I didn't learn about self-care until I would think I was like 39. Yeah. And I didn't, I'm like, that's a thing. I get to take care of me. Woohoo. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> Yay. That's awesome. I'm glad you're doing that. Very yeah. well-deserved and very needed, right? Mm -hmm. Put your oxygen mask on first. Yeah. Okay. So we got a lot of awesome tips. Tell me where, tell us all where we can find you on social media and where we could contact you. Sure. So on social media, um, I am at, I just want to check. It is at Jesse coffee too, um, on, on uh, Twitter. And then, um, and then on Facebook, it's, uh, you can just find me at Jesse coffee and, um, yeah, I post a lot of personal and a lot of professional and, um, on my Facebook, um, Twitter is a little bit more, um, professional related. So, um, a lot of, uh, research and then also just the latest and greatest, um, information shared out, um, that I collect. So. That's awesome. Yay. Well, thank you so much, Jesse. I appreciate your time and so excited to have ongoing conversations with you. Um, thanks everyone for joining and stay tuned for the next IME Community Solutions for Children's Health podcast and YouTube video. Bye. Thank you for tuning into the IME Community Podcast, where self-love is your superpower. The content of this podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Carla Lester and is not intended as, and shall not be understood as, a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The opinions shared reflect the host and guest and do not represent an organization or medical group. Always seek the advice of your physician or therapist if you have concerns about your health. 
please like and subscribe to the IME Community Podcast. Share IME with your friends and go to imecommunity.com to join the member community. Don't forget to follow IME on social.